You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. You are my hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Dune with Bartolo. My name is June Lee. Uh, on the show this week, we have Emma Spann of Sports Illustrated. Emma is a senior editor over at Sports Illustrated, and uh, she was gracious enough to uh, spend some time uh, out of her week and her daily routine and the uh, the insane lead-up to the baseball preview issue that SA puts out every single year to talk about uh, kind of bringing a different perspective to the podcast. We haven't talked to very many editors yet, and Emma was... Uh, very insightful and kind of uh, talking about the editing process when it comes to journalism, which is not something that we've uh, covered really on the podcast yet. So uh, Emma was fantastic. Um, and, and I really do mean this. Like I, I say my guests are, are fantastic every single week, but like Emma was, was really, really great. Uh, and we've been lucky enough to, to have some pretty great guests on the show so far. And uh, she was now, we, we kind of covered Emma's career up to up to now, and she had a, a stint at Sports on Earth, and that led to her, her gig at SI, and we covered all of that and how she got started in journalism and uh, among, any, among many other things. So I think you guys are going to enjoy the conversation that I had with Emma, uh, but before we get to the interview, uh, first a word from her friends over at FanDuel. So baseball season is just about a week in now, and if you haven't had the opportunity to capitalize on Trevor Story's monster season or Carlos Correa mounting his MVP campaign, you got to head over to FanDuel and play one-day fantasy baseball. FanDuel is the best way to experience sports, period. And not only do you get to watch your favorite team, but you get to create your own as well. Baseball has never been this much fun. You can play against your friends or you can test your skills against other players. And you can decide how often you want to play, whether that's every single day or just once. FanDuel has contests for everyone ranging from the casual fan to the expert. And you, you can win money on top of it while you're at it, which is, you know, everybody loves money. So if you think you know about FanDuel just because you saw a bunch of ads during the football season, make sure to think again. You have to experience the fun and the excitement to really get it, and you have to try FanDuel today. So to enter FanDuel League, head over to their website, and if you don't want a, a prize in your first contest, they'll refund your entry fee back up to $10 to your account so you can play more. Just deposit, play, and if you don't win, they'll refund your first entry up to $10. Just go to FanDuel.com and use my promo code BARTOLO. That's FanDuel.com, promo code BARTOLO. And without further ado, this is Emma Spann of Sports Illustrated. So Emma Spann from uh, Sports Illustrated, she's an editor over there. Uh, and, uh, you know, Emma, how are things going? Pretty good. Um, busy time of year with the baseball season about to start, but um, also a fun time of year. Yeah, I mean, the, the Sports Illustrated baseball preview issue is something I look forward to on an annual basis, so I'm looking forward to see what you guys put out. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, do the, the usual thing that we do on the podcast and kind of get into the nitty-gritties of, uh, of how you came into sports writing and got interested in sports. So I guess just to, like, start off, uh, where did you grow up and, and uh, how did you get into sports and sports writing? How did you find an interest in that? Sure. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, just outside of the city. And my dad was a baseball fan, a Yankees fan, so I grew up watching baseball and, and, and loving it. Um, especially, you know, got to enjoy those, those 90s Yankees teams when I was in high school and, uh, and then into college. So that was a good, a good time to be a Yankees fan. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but I never really planned on going into sports. Um, I was actually I was a big nerd as a kid, and I was a film major in college. And I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't know what, and I just sort of 
fell into it actually. <laughs> um, but I guess it all worked out in the end. Mm-hmm. So I, you went to Yale and, and you majored in film. And I'm currently minoring in film. Did like, was there anything that you took away from film that like helped out in the writing or the sports at all? Um, I think you know writing about anything helps your writing skills in general. As far as you know, the film major goes, I really enjoyed it, so I wouldn't say that I regret it, but whether it's been super useful professionally, eh, hard to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it was, you know, I, it's conditioning that I've always loved, and so I enjoyed getting to learn about them and, and made some truly terrible student films uh, that I sincerely hope no longer <laughs> exist anywhere on Earth. <laughs> um, but, it was, but it was a lot of fun. So yeah, as far as whether it was practically useful, though, Probably not. <laughs> right. But I think it's interesting that there's like a divide between uh, people who major in journalism and then go into that. And then there's also the people who say like you should never major in journalism. And the best way to to go into the industry is by kind of getting a broad sense of critical thinking and learning about as many possible subjects as possible. Yeah, you know, I could really see a case for those. I think there's definitely areas in which journalism would have been very useful in school. I mean, when I when I first got into this field, I think I was a, a decent writer, but I had no idea how to report. Um, they're two sort of very different skills, and I'm still to this day a much better writer than I am a reporter. It's something I've worked on and continue to work on. Um, but I think if you'd been, if I'd been forced in college to, you know, to do more interviews and sort of get more practice, that probably would have been helpful. Did you Did you work on the student newspaper during college? I wrote film reviews for the student paper, um, for the Yale Herald, mm-hmm. um, which, again, was really fun. But, again, it's not the same kind of uh, going out and reporting skills that that you, you know, sort of need later on. So so at what point did you kind of figure out that you wanted to to pursue a career in writing or, or just sports writing in general? Um, when I wanted to write, I was after college. first job I got was at a talent agency, which was horrible. I was an assistant. Um, I was totally miserable and quit about six months in. And then I worked at Barnes and Noble, um, just as you know, in retail, which I actually enjoyed a lot more than the talent agency, but was not really a viable long-term career plan in New York. Um, and after that, I got a job at a company called News that no longer exists, um, summarizing Z-grade movies. Basically, I <laughs> would do like ten a day. You just write about like random crap. Like we did a lot of. German karaoke, anime porn, flashy movies, um, Christian kids movies, like hundreds of Bollywood titles, and you just sort of like take a take a description of them and then rewrite it or write your own or sort of make it up sometimes. Um, and that I was just incredibly bored doing that. Um, so I eventually started a baseball blog called Ethos Pitch, mostly just to entertain myself at, and slack off at work. Um, but actually, through that, I ended up um, getting an offer to do a little writing for the Village Voice. Um, they asked, "Why don't you cover the Mets and the Yankees for them?" This was 2006, so both teams were about to go to the playoffs. Um, and I basically had no idea what I was doing, but of course, I said yes, and uh, just sort of, just sort of like getting thrown into the deep end. Um, just suddenly, I was, you know, there in the Yankees locker room, and I had absolutely no like sports reporting experience at all. Um, but it was, you know, obviously a really great opportunity, and I learned a lot very fast. Um, and that was, you know, that was the beginning of it all, even though I, I really never intended for that to happen. Sure. I, I think it's really interesting that you started the blog, you know, in that time period, because I think that's, you know, from my understanding, I, I mean, I was really young back then, but 
mm-hmm. the, the the blog the blog stuff was starting to blow up at that point in time. Was that something that you were cognizant of when when uh, when you started the blog, or was that just kind of like a on the whim kind of thing that you did? I mean, I knew that it was happening for some people. It wasn't really what I had in mind. I was mostly just trying to, you know, get a little writing practice and entertain myself. And, you know, I still was a huge baseball fan, so it was fun to get to write about that and interact with some other baseball fans. Um, yeah, blogs really started blowing up when I was, I guess, in college, and I came across them then and, you know, read all the Yankees blogs really thoroughly and learned a lot, you know, learned about, about your metrics and other stuff that I never would have figured out otherwise. Um, but yeah, I had no, I didn't think that it would lead to like a, a real job necessarily, or at least not that fast. How much, how much baseball reading were you doing, uh, you know, back then? Cause like, I assume covering those Yankees, like with those Yankees teams, I mean, there was probably a ton of great writing around just all the, the success and all the interesting personalities, uh, around those, you know, the, the late nineties Yankees and all the, yeah and all the drama with Steinbrenners and all that good stuff. No, I did a ton of reading about them, probably more then actually than I do now, because now when I'm reading, I kind of want to get away from baseball and, uh, you know, away from work. But at the time, I mean, I read a ton of every, you know, ton of books and, um, and yeah, there were a lot of really, really fun blogs out there. Um, say, let's say, uh, Buster Olney, who was on your podcast a few weeks ago, was the Yankees beat writer when I was in high school. So I mm-hmm. uh, grew up reading him and, um, no, it was a, those were, you know, fun, fun times, but, even aside from the Yankees, I would read, you know, a lot of historical stuff. I read all the Bill James stuff and Ball Four and Roger Angel and, and all that, uh, all that good stuff. I think there's been, like, a very distinct shift in how, how people have approached baseball writing over the last, like, 20 years since, you know, since the explosion of blogs, but, like, also since the introduction of all the sabermetrics into baseball. Have you seen that shift, you know, being right in, kind of growing up right in the middle of that, um, of that time period? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, when I was actually in high school, I didn't wasn't really aware of many of that stuff. But once I did start getting online and seeing all those all those blogs, I actually remember really clearly the first time I read a piece that said that Derek Jeter was a terrible defender, and I was like, "What are they talking about? That's crazy! He's Derek Jeter. <laughs> yeah. That's ridiculous. Who is this idiot?" And then, like, I saw it again somewhere else, and I read more about it. And then I was like watching the game, and I was you know watching the plays that Jeter couldn't couldn't make compared to you know. Plays other short steps made, and I was like, "Wait a minute, they're right." Um, it's kind of a yeah, you know, definitely it's like, a. It's like finding out that Santa Claus isn't real, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, <laughs> I was probably like you know twenty or twenty-one at that point, and I definitely remember that being like a huh, maybe there is something to this other stuff, and sort of getting a bit more of an open mind about that. So. So you so it seemed like you were learning a lot about reporting on the job through on the fly kind of through that first village voice experience. What were some of the takeaways that you took from that time learning learning just covering the the Yankees and the and the Mets at that point? Yeah, this um you know, reporting is definitely the biggest part of the challenge for me and, and really still is. I'm I wouldn't say I'm shy, but I'm I have a I guess I have a heightened sense of awkwardness <laughs> and uh <laughs> Reporting is often just really awkward. There's there's no way around it. You know, someone has a terrible game and you're going up to them going like, so, why just luck today? You know, obviously, don't put it like that. But, um, you know, it was tough for me to push through that, which I've gotten better at. Um, and also just, you know, there is an art to it, you know, trying to figure out the right questions and then follow-up questions when you don't get the right answers and how to phrase things and how that affects the kind of response that you, that you do get. Um, all that stuff is... You know, something that I definitely had to learn, and I'm still learning. Um, you see, 
SLI has some, some really great reporters like Tom Verducci who are just, you know, great at what they do. So you sort of can learn from, from watching them as well. Mm-hmm. What What are some of the uh, the memorable, awkward experiences you had during your early time covering baseball? <laughs> um, I haven't had anything too terrible. I've, I've, I've come close a few times to, like, you know, going up to the wrong person in the locker room. <laughs> Um, but I haven't done anything too awful. I do my actual my very first day in the locker room with the Mets would be like probably September 2006. Um, and I was like, all right, I'm gonna just start at the top. I'm gonna try to talk to Pedro Martinez because he's, you know, he's a great quote. He's a, he's a great pitcher, and it'll be you know awesome to get his perspective. So you're know, standing around awkwardly, and you know, there's a lot of awkward standing around in, in yeah. sports writing. It's kind of it's kind of like movies that way. Like it's a job that sounds cool, but like. Sixty percent of it is sort of standing around uncomfortably. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I was doing that, and again, I had never been in the locker room before, and I'm waiting for Pedro to come out, and finally he does, and he's wearing a jersey but no pants, and I was like, all right, well, I'll just wait for him to put on pants, you know, and then I'll talk to him. I just waited for like an hour, and he never put on pants. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it was pretty common for him. He just he wasn't really into pants in general. Um, so that was definitely a like. Well, I guess I should have talked to him anyway, or, or you know. Um, actually, I talked to Tom Glavin instead, who was, I was so nervous that I could, like, barely speak, um, and he was extremely nice about it. So I will always, you know, despite how that season ended for him, I will always be, uh, or the next season, I guess, I will always be a little thankful for Tom Glavin. So uh, what, what, were some of the, what were some of the things that you wish you knew back then, heading into, uh, you know, just heading into your first gig and... Uh, Something that you as an editor now, you know, however many years down the line, could, you wish you could tell your, your younger self uh, heading into kind of those first couple of experiences, you know, hmm. be, being a reporter and a writer in the locker room. Well, I guess I was, you know, I was so nervous about it, but, you know, what, what, what one writer told me at the time was like, look, it's, it's not brain surgery. I mean, it is a little stressful and I'm not saying it's easy because it's not, but, you know, a lot of people are capable of covering a baseball game and it's not, um, you know, you don't, have to be, you don't have to be quite so nervous about it. You know, these guys have heard a lot of dumb questions, and yours is probably not going to be the dumbest, you know? <laughs> um, so it would have reassured us a little bit in that regard. And it's, you know, and also that it's okay to, you know, to push more. I was, you know, if I didn't get a, a response or a real edge of the question, I would let it go really fast. I didn't want to be rude. Um, but, you know, being a good reporter tends to involve being, like, a little bit rude. Not being a jerk, but, you know, sure. you just have to push more than I was comfortable with then. And I think I understand much better now that it's, part of the job, but it's not personal, and most players understand that, too. Did you, um, you, did know, there, did you, have, did you have any experiences where you were, maybe you, you pushed too hard, or and you had an athlete snap back at the, early, at the early points? A little bit, and I think, you know, that first year with The Voice, and I was only with The Voice for actually less than a year, because then the editor got fired, and everyone he had hired got fired, including me, um, and then I had, like, a bunch of other random odd jobs before I actually got back into sports, but Anyway, one of the teams I covered was the, the Nets, for, I mean, sorry, the Knicks for, like, two weeks. Um, and that was the sort of their, their lowest point in the Isaiah Thomas era and a complete disaster. And I was trying to talk to Stephon Marbury. And, uh, <laughs> he was in a terrible mood, understandably, and, you know, that didn't go well. But um, I wouldn't say I pushed too hard. It was just, you know, the a miserable time to be in the, to be in the yeah. Knicks locker room. But, um no, yeah, and also, you know, having an, also having an athlete snap at you while it's unpleasant, it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as you're professional and asking a reasonable question, it's, you know, I think it's probably happened to, to most veteran sports writers at some point. 
So once you once you once uh, once you left the voice, what were what kind of things were you up to? Um, so at that point, I had a I got a book contract to write about the <laughs> the uh, Mets and the Yankees in 2007. The thinking was, oh, you know, we could have another subway series, like they could both go back there. And instead, I got fired so in the clubhouse access, and then the Mets had an epic historical collapse. I think probably the worst of all time. <laughs> And then the Yankees lost in the playoffs when Jabba Chamberlain got swarmed by Nap. So yeah. <laughs> that could have gone better. Um, but I had to basically recast the whole book. And while I was working on that, in order to make money, I had a bunch of very random jobs. I, um, I worked at a wine store. I sold mittens shaped like bear paws at the Inventory Holiday Market. Um, I ghostwrote Dean's letters for a Caribbean medical school. Wow. <laughs> um, I worked at a recruiting company. I, I'm forgetting a few. I had just like a long stretch of like very random uh, day jobs and, while and I was trying to finish this book, which took years. I mean, like, um, I mean, at so. any point during that time when you like were having these random jobs, did you ever doubt whether or not you were going to be writing full time about, about sports? Oh yeah. Constantly. <laughs> Um, I really had no idea if I would ever get like back on a career track, um, and I still knew that I wanted to write. But I, you know, I had no idea how it was all gonna shake out. And I really thought I might just be working retail forever, which a lot of people do. And it actually isn't, you know, it's not like a fate worse than death or anything. But um, I actually really liked that wine store job. We got a, we got wine at like wholesale prices. So <laughs> um, I kind of miss I kind of miss that one to be honest. Um, yeah, no, it was it was very discouraging, and I it was a rough. It was a rough time for me, just you know, a lot of uh, a lot of doubt and a lot of you know, just really struggling to like pay the rent every month. Um, but I did finally get the book done, and it came out. And I wouldn't say that it you know sold very well, but it got some good reviews. Um, and then I was able to get um, a job as a part-time associate sports editor at the Daily, which was an iPad publication from News Corps, mm-hmm. which also no longer exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I was, you know, that got, sort of got me back into sports and was my first editing job. Um, and I did that for about a year and a half until that publication went under. Um, and then right after that, I got hired at Sports on Earth as an editor, um, which was a really great opportunity for me and, and really, you know, a turning point, I would say, as far as having an actual career. <laughs> so once you, once you became, when, I mean, once you kind of like, saw the other side of the desk and you became an editor, what what did you kind of learn about yourself or maybe learn about journalism? Well, I suddenly had a whole new appreciation for all my editors and what they had put up with. And, like, I was very grateful that they actually are, you know, still speaking to me at all. Um, I used to not be very good with deadlines. I am much better with that now. But um, sort of one 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 thing that will drive your editor crazy. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to get a... You know, I think a lot of times editing, we're switching to editing. You don't want really to take a course or like get a degree in editing or anything. People sort of assume that if you can write, that you can edit. I think it's not necessarily true, but um, that assumption worked out well for me. Um, you know, but you sort of you need to look. You know, you're trying to figure out, okay, how can we improve this? You look at it through a different way than I did when I was writing, and more at the nuts and bolts of it and the structure and so on. And that's, you know, I would hope it's going to be a better writer, but it's definitely been been interesting and I like it a lot. So we'll get back to Emma in just a second, but first a word from our friends over at SeatGeek. I spend a lot of my energy trying to figure out what the best way to efficiently use my time is, and with baseball season and going to the ballpark and all that stuff, uh, you want to figure out the best way 
to most efficiently buy and sell your sports and concert tickets. And SeatGeek is the only place I ever go to look for tickets or going to a game or going to a concert. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. I just used it the other day to check out some tickets uh, for my trip to New York next weekend uh, and trying to check out a Yankees game. I've never been to Yankee Stadium before, so that's something that I wanted to do while I was in the city uh, away from Mythica for the weekend. SeatGeek pulls all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you can save time and never miss a deal. And you can set alerts for upcoming games and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every single ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on its value so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you can buy, uh, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. And best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price and unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkouts. Listeners to Doing It For Bartel can get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. So to get your $20 rebate, download the free SeatGeek app Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code and enter promo code Bartolo. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you made your first ticket purchase. So make sure to download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code Bartolo today. And please, please check out SeatGeek. They are helping out the show. And uh, without further ado, uh, back to Adam Span. So when when you're when you're uh, when you're approaching like editing an article, how is that mindset different from from when you approach writing an article? Um, it's very different, and it also really depends on the article. You know, when you get something in from Tom Verducci, it's a pretty good bet that you don't have to do that much. You know, you sort of go through and make sure things make sense and make sure things are accurate, and you know, maybe have a tweak here and there, but you're not going to be, you know, overhauling that story probably. Um, and then some things need, you know, a bit more work. And you just, you just start by, you know, you, you read it once, and then you think, okay, what what was missing or what didn't make sense or what confused me or... Um, it's hard to say. There's not, you know, it's not really like a step-by-step thing. It's it's, almost, it's kind of intuitive, uh, at least for me. Um, just sort of, you know, reading it and then evaluating your reactions to it, and, and sort of taking a an approach to see, okay, working backwards from that, you know, what can we tweak that would fix this, you know, issue. Mm-hmm. I th- I think that I think that daily was a really interesting experiment that happened when you know the the iPad was first launching and the idea of just kind of the online only subscription based um, thing and I think it might have been like kind of ahead of its time um, hmm. to a certain extent uh, but like from just from from that experience as a whole working for this very unique publication that like was a very different idea than anything else that was kind of on the market what was what what, what did you kind of take away from that experience. Well, it was strange because even though in some ways you're right, it was a very, you know, the iPad only thing was, was very forward thinking. In other ways, it was it was very traditional. You know, published once a day, you know, late at night or early in the morning. Um, you had space constraints because it had to fit on the iPad page. So it wasn't like an online story where it could be however long it needed to be. It was more, it was more like print in that way. Um, you had to make it, you know, fit a certain sure. word count and, um, and, you know, and, and be relevant for the entire day to come, and so it was, it was a weird combination of advanced and, and sort of old-fashioned in that way. Um, it was a good learning experience for me. I didn't, you know, if I hadn't been working there, I probably wouldn't have subscribed to it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a news core publication. It didn't really have a tone that, that spoke to me, really. Uh-huh. Not that they didn't have a lot of talent there, you know, and good mm-hmm. writers, but um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was you know, advanced technology and sort of a throwback um, approach in other ways. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you got to Sports on Earth, uh, the website was, was pretty ambition, ambitious uh, at, at, its, at its beginning. And um, 
you know, it was following kind of the the trend that Granlin was setting in terms of the long form writing and these these uh, these kind of vertical websites. Uh, what was uh, what was the beginning be, the beginnings for you uh, working there, and what was kind of the uh, the mindset and the 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 editorial mission behind a website like Sports on Earth? No, it was a really great place to work. Um, we had a tiny, tiny staff. I think you know, unlike Grantman, which I think had dozens of employees, we really only had six employees. Um, so we all did everything, and we're all working sort of around the clock. But we also were all pretty, you know, excited about the project, and and so it was a lot of fun. Um, the editor in chief was Larry Burke. He's a really great guy, and and he really just wanted to publish good writing and, and you know topics was as important as whether, you know, it was an interesting story or um, whether it was well-written. So he was, you know, very open to trying new things. And I think because we were such a small website um, and he couldn't do absolutely everything, I got to, you know, take over a lot of stuff, including our baseball coverage, in a way that was, you know, you know a really good opportunity for me to learn how to do that. Um, we had a very few staff writers and a big freelance budget, so we got to work with a lot of different writers. And, uh, yeah, tried a lot of different things. I mean, you know, it was never, <laughs> there was never probably, like, a clear enough plan for how it was going to be profitable, but it was, you know, a site that we were all, that we all believed in quality-wise, and, and uh, I'm really proud of a lot of the work we did there. So, uh, I, I, do, you, do you think that that sort of model can survive? And, like, given, like, all the the kind of the the financial turmoil just in the journalism industry in general, is that is that website at its beginning, at its core roots, something that you think can be successful in today's internet age? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I want to believe. Uh, I've, I've thought a lot about this, though. It's, it's tough. I mean, we really didn't do much of the kind of clickbaity stuff that, you know, somewhat that some sites do. That like, I felt like BuzzFeed does a lot of good work, but then they also do like a lot of crap that, you know, sure. <laughs> it's just there to get clicks. Um, and we tried, you know, we didn't do that part of it. Um, I don't know, you know, it was interesting because it was co-owned by MLB and USA Today. And MLB.com, MLB Advanced Media, you know, they have all the money in the world, and we yeah. weren't really that expensive. If they'd wanted to keep us going as a kind of vanity project, they could have done it forever and not really even noticed, um, I think. I obviously don't have access to their books, and they might disagree. Um, but, you know, ideally, a good journalism project shouldn't have to have just a sponsor like that. You know, you want to also make money in its own right. How that site could have done it right now in this climate is, is tough. I mean, I, I do want to believe that there is a way, but I probably haven't figured it out yet. And if I if I had, I would have a lot of people uh, paying me to consult on their adventures. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where where do you think this kind of form, this long form type stuff is, is headed in, in this like very short form age where people are... Uh, are consuming the the vines and the the gifts and stuff, and then the the news cycle for that kind of stuff lasts like fifteen an hour, fifteen minutes an hour, and then you're on to the next thing, the next highlight. Uh, what what kind of place do you think this this long form commentary and these features have in in the journalism, uh, the journalism space today? Yeah, I think there's still a place for it. I would say I don't think that you know long form is kind of a strange term because to me, a good story could be good at you know a thousand words sure. or it. 10,000 words. It doesn't have to just be long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know what you mean. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think there is still a market for it. Some of our best read pieces were very long. Um, it just depends on the topic and the writer and, you know, whether you can connect with the audience in the right way. Um, 
but for any of this stuff, it's very hard to monetize right now. And I, I tend to think that film will figure this out and that the paradigm will shift. Um, but I don't know exactly how. SI is still profitable. We always still have, you know, 3 million subscribers and a lot of web traffic. And it's not as profitable as it used to be, but it still is at least, you know, paying for itself and then some. So that's sort of encouraging, but I do think that there is going to have to be a shift in the way that people either pay for content or consume content in order to enable this kind of good independent journalism to keep functioning. Let's let's talk about Sports Illustrated. How did you end up at uh, as an editor over there? Um, I got a call while I was still at Sports on Earth, um, and I really hated to leave because I loved that site. But I knew that the our contract with MLB and USA Today was up, yeah, you know, that, that next spring, um, and that I, I knew that we, there could be an issue there whether they would keep us running or not. And it was also just hard, to, you know. Sports Illustrated is still a name that means a lot. And it's still Sports not Illustrated, yeah. Yeah, it was it was very tough to say no. Um, actually, my um, my now husband already worked there on the website side. Um, so they actually called him and were like, do you, do you mind if we ask your girlfriend if she wants to, uh, <laughs> she's interested in being an editor here? Um, it's an, an, an unusual way to uh, to reach out. But um, yeah, so I went, you know, I went in and talked to them, and you know, they had an opportunity for, for a baseball editor, which, again, was just too good to pass up. You know, the, the writers at SI and the you know, the resources are, are such that you can do some some very good stuff there. And um, so I took the chance and went over and, and been really happy there. Unfortunately, I didn't realize so Sports on Earth had a ton of layoffs like two months later or three months later, which I, I didn't realize were coming so soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turned out to be, you know, probably the right move, even though it was tough to see that going down while I was not there. Mm-hmm. Did you, when you were heading to a place like Sports Illustrated to to be an editor on their baseball coverage, is there is there pressure that comes with that being such part of this like enormous legacy publication that has s- still a lot of clout in the the sports journalism realm today? Yeah, man, that's the pressure on myself. You know, you always want to do a good job, and you want the stories that you edit to be received well and to be strong work. And um, so, sure, I mean, and it's also just more people paying attention than there were in a place like Sports on Earth, which had a I think a Good, devoted, loyal following, but not the same reach, obviously. Um, so sure, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely different. There's also a lot of support in place, though. You know, unlike the six of us and our little cubicle at Sports Center, I thought it was a big office, and I have people above me and around me, and there's a lot of systems in place, so, you know, everything gets read, you know, by multiple people and evaluated very thoroughly and fact-checked, which is wonderful. <laughs> um, I really appreciate our fact-checkers. Um, I'm copy-edited, and so there's... While there is pressure, there's also a lot of help to make sure that you know you stay on track. So I've you know I've been a reader of Sports Illustrated since I was a little kid, and I'm generally just like very fascinated by process. Um, so mm-hmm. could you could you break down for me how an, an issue of Sports Illustrated comes together every single week, and how that kind of balances out with the coverage that you guys do on the website? Sure. I mean, I don't work on the web as much, but I you know can can speak a little bit about it. Um, it's a long process, you know, sometimes we'll have stories planned for a certain week, um, months in advance. Sometimes they come together much sooner than that. Um, there's a lot of technical stuff that goes into figuring out, you know, the actual page counts and, you know, the mock-up of the magazine and what ads go where and what, you know, how it all, just technically, physically, how it all comes together, which I had never really had to deal with before. So I always worked mostly online. Um, so that's been really interesting. 
Um, when the stories come in, um, I'll read it, and then an assistant managing editor will give it a second edit. Um, then it goes to the copy desk, then it goes to the fact checker, then it comes back to me. <laughs> I have to make it fit the page and the word count and incorporate everybody's notes. Then we all get together again and talk about it, and only then does it go final. So there's a lot of steps in that process. Whereas at Sports Center, let's say I got a story in, I read it, <laughs> you know, I made my changes, and, and it went up, you know, pretty pretty quickly. So that that's been an adjustment, and it takes, you know, it takes much longer, but it also is um, can be beneficial to the to the work. Um, and yeah, there's a, you know, I guess, the web, whereas the website is a more, you know, they plan things out and they to a certain extent, but they also just react much more to that day's news um, or that week's news. Mm -hmm. When you're, when you first re receive a story, um, what are the kind of things that you, you're looking for in terms of like edits and uh, how often do you see, uh, what kind of ch changes do you see consistently when it gets back to you from the first, between the first time and the second time? Well, interesting. One thing I've noticed, um, and thanks to these fact checkers, you know, our, our reporters are very accurate, but often the subjects of the story themselves will get like significant facts about their own lives wrong, which I think is just fascinating. Um, <laughs> you know, we had some guy a couple years ago who like got wrong the position that he played in like high school and college football. <laughs> uh, like, how do you even how do you even do that? Um, but they have, you know, this is, it's interesting to me. People's memories trick them, and often, especially in baseball, I mean, I don't know about other sports, I'm sure it happens there too, but you get these great baseball stories, and always like, do we have to fact check this? <laughs> Half the time, it's not actually going to hold up. Um, that's been sort of interesting. I mean, people aren't, I don't think they're not lying, they're just remembering wrong. You know, they people sort of create these stories in their minds, and then without even realizing it, they, you know, have some key details wrong. Um, so that's been interesting to me. Mm -hmm. so, um yeah, go ahead. No, no, please continue. Yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, what you look for depends. Obviously, there's stuff like grammar and just, you know, sentence flow and the sort of more surface-level stuff. Um, and then, you know, some stories need a more deeper structural change and some don't. Sometimes you think, oh, I wish we knew more about this or wish we talked to that person or we should really give this person a chance to respond or that kind of thing. Um, or, you know... And that the implying this thing without meaning to, and you know, there's a sort of you know a bunch of different levels of changes that you might want to make, and some of them are easier than others. Um, usually, with our you know with our writers, they'll always send the story back after they make edits and make sure that they're okay with it. And sometimes you go to them earlier and ask for a rewrite or a new paragraph or some new additional reporting here or there. Mm -hmm. Something that I've found to be really interesting, just like starting to get into like this 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 industry a little bit, is is you know with with the writer editor relationships. I feel like that's one of the most unseen, underplayed kind of parts of the final product. And seeing you know you have this article and you have this byline onto an article, but you you don't see all the 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 back work behind all of it. Um, as an editor, how do you how do you manage these? Uh, you know, obviously writers have, have egos and you've got to manage all these things. How do you deal with that kind of, the, the politics of that? Um, you know, it depends on the writer. At, at Sports and Arts, we had some people who were occasionally hard to work with uh, or, you know, pushed back or, you know, didn't didn't like your edits. The most part at SI, people are pretty professional and, and willing to work with you. And you might not like your edit, but people will talk to you about it and you can go back and forth and, you know, figure out a compromise that you can work with. Um, yeah, it's, it, you know... It's interesting. I, mean, I, I was a writer pretty recently. I still write sometimes. I think I'm pretty pretty close to that and understand the writer's 
perspective pretty well. So I'm a relatively writer-friendly editor, and ultimately, you know, it's their it's their name on the story, not mine. So you want to need to make sure that they can live with the published result because they're the ones who are going to have to answer for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, you do your best to to help here or there improve it. Um, but ultimately, I you know always want them to be okay with our changes. Uh-huh. So when you when you guys are coming up with stories, whether it's like the long term stuff that you guys have planned out for months, or kind of the the quicker reaction maybe trend pieces that you guys are working on, uh, what are you guys looking for when you are trying to identify a story that you think is worthy for publication in the magazine? Well, it's a couple different levels. I mean, sometimes you know you you need to cover the NCAA tournament, so no matter what happens, obviously you have to react to that. Um, some things are more investigative, deeper dive, long-term stuff, which is what I really like working on probably the most. Um, you want to look for something that, it's, it's, it's sort of a tension between, um, you know, when you're writing about a baseball player, you tend to want to pick someone that people know about and want to read about. But at the same time, if, if there's someone that people should know about but don't know about, you know, maybe you want to do a story on him to, you know, bring him to a wider audience. Here's, you know, here's a cool player you probably haven't heard much about and why you should know about him. Um, so there's a couple different, you know, there's a bunch of different reasons why you might do a story. Um, you know, my favorites tend to be the ones that are like deep dives into the process, like you know, really going behind the scenes with a, a coach or a player on how they do what they do, um, or the investigative stuff, which can be, you know, is is only sports because it's about usually an athlete or a sports figure, but it's really just more traditional investigative reporting. Um, I'm not I'm not good at reporting those stories, but I like editing them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. When uh, I mean, how how do you, how do you go by uh, go about identifying whether or not a story is is worthy for for publication or something that is is something that you think is is worthy of uh, of pursuing? I mean, it's tough to know. You know, it's the balance of like, do I want to read about this, and you know, will our readers want to read about this? It's not always the same thing. Um, you know, I I would be happy to read a Bartolo Colon story every week. Probably, probably that would be a bit much for uh, most baseball fans. Um, but no, it's you know, it's it's whether there's something that sets it apart. You know, you don't want to just be like, hey, this guy is good at baseball, and then do that every week because you know you you could do that, but it would probably get old pretty fast. So you, you know, you, you look for um, stories that that haven't been told that much that should be told more, or an interesting angle on a, a bigger story. I mean. The toughest ones, I think, especially now in print, are, you know, you, you don't really want to do too many game stories. Like, yes, you have to have somebody at the Super Bowl, but by the time the magazine comes out, everyone's already read, you know, dozens of Super Bowl stories. So you really need to pick your spots there. We have writers who are very good at finding um, different angles to those kind of stories, but, you know, there's like thousands of reporters there. So, you know, you're not going to get a, it's hard to get a totally unique take there. Sure. How is the, how is the approach different because you guys are a weekly magazine? What is what is kind of the 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 focus or the mindset that you guys had you having the covering these kind of more timely events like the Super Bowl or the World Series or something like that? How do you guys approach that? You need to be much more careful about looking ahead and not not just writing off this game, but finding some element of it that is different or that will will hold up in a few days. Um, we close on Mondays, so you want to try to make sure you don't overreact to news that happens on a on the weekend or on a Monday. Um, but by the time magazine comes out on Wednesday or Thursday, it might not be as you know as much in the news. Um, there's also you know we have a long tradition of writing about players on a Monday and then like they get injured on a Tuesday. So <laughs> yeah. um, spend most of my Tuesdays just like praying that whoever we wrote about uh, will will not hurt himself. Like my very first 
story that I edited was about the Rockies two years ago in May. Um, and like, you know, Chalewitzki is finally healthy and the Rockies are doing great. And I'm like, the night we closed the story, he like tweaked his hamstring. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. Um, and then of course the Rockies fell apart. <laughs> uh, that'll, that'll happen sometimes. Um, no, you want to, you know, especially in, like in baseball, it's a long season. So you want to write about teams like the Rockies early in the year while they're still relevant, or at least not totally irrelevant. Um, you know, if you have a story you want to do this year, you know, on a Reds player, you don't want to wait until August when everyone's going to be like, why are you writing about the Reds? Right. Um, you think about that stuff a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, as a, as what, what has been some of the more memorable editing uh, experience or just like experiences working on a story that you've had so far at Sports Illustrated? Um, good question. Um, you know, we've edited a lot of, you know, stories that I'm proud of. I'm not sure that any of them, from the editing perspective, are all that exciting. I mean, you're pretty much just seeing your computer and sending emails and chatting on the phone. Sure. But, uh, um, let's see. You know, we've done some, some stories that, you know, take a long time to actually get to print. It's just more satisfying when they finally do. Um, yeah, after all that work and delay and everything else. Um, sorry, nothing's jumping to mind, but I will keep thinking about it. Mm-hmm. What is... Uh... You know, Sports Illustrated is obviously a legacy publication, and like it's it's still going to have a lot of subscribers because it is it is Sports Illustrated. Um, but like the reality is, like things are shifting towards the internet, and more and more people as 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 the uh, the print the people who read magazines get older. Um, you know, more and more people are going to be consuming content through the internet. How is uh, how how from your vantage point has Sports Illustrated tried to tackle this issue? Um, well, they put a lot of research into the website, um, which, you know, they, they had a redesign a couple of years ago that didn't entirely work the way it was supposed to, but they're, you know, they're still, they're working on, on that, working on improving their website. Um, I do think they've, they've started putting more stuff online. They still try to limit it, which I understand, because just in the magazine, you want people to actually subscribe and have a reason to pay for it, whereas if it's online for free, you know, why would they? So they want to be careful with that, but I also think it's important to let people see, you know, the good work that we are doing. Um, a lot of which, you know, if it's only in the magazine, people who don't subscribe might just never get to it. We, we, got, we also got the vault back up and running, which I think is huge. SI Vault has oh, you know, all of our stories going back to the beginning of the magazine. Um, the a few weeks after they, Yeah, a few weeks after they go up. That was down for a couple of years while they redid the site. Um, but it's, it's pretty awesome, and it's just a, it really gives you a good sense of, you know, all that history and all that good work over the decades that, is now available. So at least, you know, even if it takes a while, all of, all of our magazine stuff will be available that way, which I think is important. How how do you think do you think how people have written articles has changed? Um, how have you seen kind of articles change and the way that people approach writing about sports has changed since this uh, since this crash towards the internet and everybody having shorter attention spans? Have have you seen these you know the, the stuff that you see in the magazine? Um, change in terms of how how it's approached um, because people just generally have shorter attention spans. Uh, not necessarily. We still do a lot of longer pieces. Um, I guess not maybe not quite as long as it used to be, but it's you know I think there's still plenty of good long form content. I, I do you know the challenge to me is not so much in the way you write it, but in how they monetize it, which they're certainly thinking a lot about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think I mean you know, I think. There's always been this idea, you know, that a lot of what's published in mass media is always kind of 
you know, credit. And that's that's been true going back to at least the turn of the last century and tabloids and, and all that stuff. And I think there's always been good work and, you know, a large influx of less good work um, you know, that people sort of snap up. I don't, I don't think that's entirely new. Um, just the the ways people pay for it and the ways that it gets monetized are, are what's changing. And I think actually now it's one of the better times to do good content and to get it published somewhere, um, but it's a very hard time to get paid well for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know what I mean? I think if you write a good story, there's a lot of outlets that will put it up or you can put it up yourself or you can get it some attention. Um, and that's a good thing, but there's very, you know, relatively few of those outlets will actually pay you a living wage. Um, which is what concerns me as a, a former freelance writer. And, and, you know, I think right now for a freelancer, it's easy to get exposure and very hard to pay your rent. And that's a bigger issue for me. Mm-hmm. You you briefly mentioned uh, your then fiance, now husband, Jay Jeff, who works for Sports Illustrated. Um, Jeffy, yeah. Jeffy. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, he's he's obviously writing about baseball over there. Do you, when you guys go home at the end of the day, is it? Do you guys avoid baseball? Like, how does that? How does that work? <laughs> no, I mean we watch it every every night during the season. Um, no, it's it's good. We do have a limit on how much we'll talk about SI. We try to limit that to like you know half an hour a night or something. Um, but baseball wise, you know, we will watch you know watch the Mets or Yankees game while we're having dinner, and then later we'll watch the Dodgers game um, or just part of it. Um, and it's you know obviously that's something we both enjoy, and and he's. You know, a great resource to bounce ideas over off of and talk stuff over with, and um, hopefully I can do some of that for him too. So it's it's good. He's like living with a walking baseball encyclopedia, so it's yeah. uh, awesome handy. I'm like, hey, who who won MVP in 1975? He he would definitely know that. So do you, um, do, do you find you guys do you find you guys uh kind of bounce you know ba- not only just bouncing each other ideas off each other but like making each other better writers is there like some sort of is there any competitive competitiveness between you guys to 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 work hard i mean how does what is that relationship no, like? i wouldn't say it's competitive especially now that i'm you know i'm, I'm mostly editing he's writing on the website so i don't really edit his work um and vice versa, but I can, you know, hopefully be similar if he's not sure how a story's coming out, I can take a look, and, and vice versa. If I, if I wrote something and I'm not sure it holds up, I can show it to him and say, you know, what do you think? And he'll, you know, give me a, a, some good feedback there. Um, but we're, we're in the enough of our sort of different different things, even within just baseball writing, that it's, um, you know, different enough that there's no competition, but he's definitely um, a useful guy to have around. Mm-hmm. It's a... Uh... I think it's it's really I, there's um, you know from my vantage point I think it's been really interesting a really interesting year to be a female in sports media um, and I think it's been a incredibly valuable you know perspective to have with you know a lot of these stories going on about domestic violence and um, and, and just all all this stuff that's been that's been kind of floating around sports media uh, how has kind of being a woman in sports media influenced how you approach your work on a on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Well, every, every year is an interesting woman. Sorry, every year is an interesting year to be a woman in sports media. Um, no, it's a uh, you know I don't know that anything has especially changed this year, but it's definitely you know it's, it's a very male-dominated field, and so it can there's definitely times when you feel a little disconnected from that. And obviously, anyone who any anyone in general, but especially any woman who's writing about sports online, will get their share of trolls and creeps. That you sort of you know there's really no way to avoid it. Um, so you just got to figure out a way to to brush it off and uh, and ignore it. Um, yeah, I mean, this year I think there is there's definitely a heightened 
attention to those issues. So I think, you know, places, SI is pretty good about, I think, asking for perspectives from their um, female writers and editors and, uh, you know, trying to improve their, their coverage of those issues. I think they generally do a pretty good job. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it, it's it's still a field that I'm not sure exactly what the percentages are, but even though something like 30% of, 30 to 40% of baseball fans, for example, are women, but definitely much less than that as far as writers or people working in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a split there. And, and as far as SI readers go, our readers are very, very heavily male. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to see that percentage change a little bit. I know it's hard to get anyone to subscribe to a magazine these days, but I would love to see our female readership go up a little bit to more accurately reflect the number of fans of these sports. And I think football fans are closer to 50% female these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, the industry is definitely lagging behind in, in that way. Um, I do think, you know, I've been lucky to work with um, men who were very supportive and understanding of that stuff. And um, on the rare occasions when I've encountered trouble has been, you know, I've had my back. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a work in progress for sure. Sure. How, how, how does, do, how do you think be, uh, being a woman in sports media influences your perspective on, on how you view, you know, games and, you know, stories and, and whatnot? I don't know. I mean, I, it's, I, I wouldn't know what the alternative was, so it's right. hard for me to sure. say. I mean, I, um, you know, I, I love baseball the way that anyone loves baseball. I'm happy to watch the game and watch what ridiculous things happen and, you know, see who's who did a great performance and 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 all the usual stuff. Um, I just think I'm probably you know more sensitive to the way that um, sports media tends to cover stuff like domestic violence and sexual assault than maybe the average fan is. But I do think that is starting to change. Um, people are generally getting a bit more aware about it. Mm-hmm. How important do you think diversity is in terms of just kind of viewpoints? Uh... You know, whether it's in gender or race or, or uh, you know, sexual orientation, just overall, just diversity in the newsroom. How important do you think that is for a publication? Yeah, very important. And I've actually, I've been talking about gender, but I think you know, racial and ethnic diversity are, are just as important. We have that same issue where tons of sports fans are, you know, are, are not white, but the vast majority of the sports media still is. Um, so probably in the same way that you know that we want to get more women reading, we should also try to have you know, more diversity in, in, in other areas as well. Um, SI probably, you know, like a lot of companies, is just as, just as guilty of that as, as the average place. We can certainly use a broader swath of, of writers and editors. Um, I think it helps you, you know, see different perspectives that you might not otherwise see, opens your mind to stories that you might not otherwise be aware of, and ideally helps you, you know, gather readers from that broad spectrum. Because, you know, sports really are... They, they still do span the spectrum, you know, of, of racism, genders, and everything else in America. You know, there's sports fans among every every group, um, so it's sort of a missed opportunity if you're not capturing those fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you where do you see Sports Illustrated headed in the next ten years? I mean, what is the is you know as you know I, I've been working on the student newspaper here, and like every year we see the the paper get smaller and smaller in terms of page count, like and just you know, as, as more, more and more people head towards the web, how do you kind of see, anticipate Sports Illustrated, just, uh, Sports Illustrated as just a publication changing, um, you know, in the next five, ten years? I definitely think it'll shift online more, um, which is not, you know, I think not necessarily a bad thing for me. I'm used to 
consuming most of my news online. And, you know, I, yes, now I subscribe to Sports Illustrated, but um, for the most part, I, you know, I do my reading on the Internet. I think most people my age and younger probably are the same way. So I'm not necessarily opposed to it, but I, I do think because there is such a long tradition and we have, you know, a lot of subscribers who, who still want to get the print magazine, I think it'll still exist in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, 20, I'm not so sure. But, uh, <laughs> but 10, I think, will still it'll still be going in print form. But I don't really mind the format so much as long as we can still do, you know, good, good long, interesting reported stories. And I'm, I'm happy if they're online uh, as well as, or instead of in print. Where do you hope to see your yourself in, in five to ten years? No, I, I moved around a lot um, when I was younger, sort of not really by my own choice often. So I'm looking forward to hopefully having some stability and, and staying at SI for a good chunk of time. It's nice to be able to settle in somewhere for hopefully more than a few years. Um, and I do enjoy enjoy the work there. So hopefully still uh, still working on our baseball content and uh, and other and other stories and. and five years or so although you never know in this in this industry (laughs) yeah uh well emma uh, thanks thanks so much for the time i really really appreciate it okay no problem thanks for having me on yeah thanks thanks for coming on have a good one you are a melody i hear you all the time it really gets to me it's always on my mind you are my favorite song Thanks again to Emma Span for coming on the show. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. Uh, If this is your first time checking out the show, please head over to iTunes and hit the subscribe button. And if you guys enjoyed the show, please make sure to uh, leave us a rating. It really does help us out. Uh, And uh, if you guys do leave a rating on the show this week, uh, I will give and you tweet it at me at I am Julie. I will hit you up with a retweet and give you guys a shout out. And uh, it would be very much appreciated. Uh, And uh, if you guys haven't followed the show already on Twitter, uh, it's at Bartolopod. Emma is at Emma Span. And again, I'm at I am Junlee next week. Uh, guest TBD. Uh, we're going to figure something out. And uh, But until then, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. And if you guys have any guest requests, please, please make sure to tweet them at me as well. Uh, it would be much appreciated. Hope to have somebody that you guys uh, hope to have on the show uh, soon. So until next time, guys, see you guys in the next one. Your love is simple, baby. You've been on my mind yeah, yeah. since you're watching me. I do it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Since you say you love me, it's just a fire. Yeah, yeah. It's just a fire. <laughs>